Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Reporter Sally Herships was here a couple of months ago telling us the really surprising story of how KFC became synonymous with Japanese Christmas, and she's back. I am, and I have another story for you. Not about KFC in Japan? (laughs) No, there's only so many of those. It's a story about a car in Germany, but it starts with a philosophy student. It's 2007, and Andrea Hyatt, she is the philosophy student. She's studying German philosophers, to be specific. So she's in the north of Germany. It's winter, and she's in this small city. And it's very melancholy, and like the brightest thing there is like a birch tree, uh, the white of the birch tree. Everything else is just very dark, or it was at this time. And then one day, Andrea is driving to Berlin. It's cold and it's raining. And as she's driving along, all of a sudden, she sees these glowing smokestacks. It's a city, Wolfsburg. There are glass buildings, bright neon signs. It just kind of unfolds like something out of a children's book. So when we drove through it, it was this bright light, huge, like, glowing factory, big signs, kind of weird Disney World feeling of, like, a car, car city (laughs) in the middle of nowhere, you know, seemingly. And I was like, where are we? This is so strange. And they're like, oh, this is, you know, Wolfsburg. This is the city that Hitler built for his car. Wait, so Hitler built an entire city for a car? He sure tried to, and Andrea was surprised, too. Hitler built a city for his car? What car? I had no idea. And they sort of told me, yeah, everybody knows this car, you know, the Beetle. And I was like, Hitler built a city for the Beetle? Like, <laughs> like the hippie Beetle? Yeah, I think we do have to pause here for just a second to underscore this. Hitler planned an entire city to build the Beetle. That is Volkswagen's Beetle, the love bug. And if this is news to you, know that it was also news to Andrea. But yes, Cliff Notes version, Hitler commissioned the Volkswagen Beetle. He wanted it to be the people's car. I hadn't even known that it was associated with Hitler, to be honest with you. I just, that part of the story hadn't gotten to me. I thought of Janis Joplin and, you know, like, I just, the car to me was a hippie car. You know, it really took me uh, some time to kind of connect the dots. And then literally that night, I was researching it. Like, what? Trying to figure it out. (laughs) What happened? Yeah, how how can this be? (laughs) 
From Business Insider and Stitcher, this is Household Name. Brands you can trust. Brands you know, stories you don't. I'm Dan Bobkoff. Today, the story of the Volkswagen Beetle. It's a car often associated with flower stickers, peace, love, harmony, but it was also commissioned by Hitler. Sally Herships is back to tell us how a car born in Nazi Germany became the people's car, but in a way different than Hitler intended. The story involves a British major and a team of very, very unlikely advertisers. Stay with us. So, Sally Herships, how is it that Hitler commissions the Beetle? Where did all this begin? Well, to understand that, you have to understand the idea behind the Volkswagen first. And to get there, we have to go back to 1930, before the war. And in the States, right, we have cars. Ford made the Model T starting way back in 1908. It's affordable. Even the workers at the Ford plant can afford a Ford. So normal, everyday people could afford to buy a car. But the same thing, it's not true in 1930s Germany. Remember Andrea Hyatt? She ended up writing a book, Thinking Small, The Long, Strange Trip of the Volkswagen Beetle. I mean, if you can think of before there was, like, normal people could not uh, drive a car. It was really for the elite. So there is no car for regular people in Germany. No, but everyone wanted one. And so Andrea says the idea was in the air at the time. And that is actually what Volkswagen means, the people's car. You mean the word Volkswagen? Yeah. Volks in German translates to people. So Volks is a big word for Hitler and the Nazis. The Nazis were promising a Volks radio, a people's refrigerator, a people's tractor, a people's television set, pretty much everything you could want. And the idea of a people's car was huge. This wasn't just about the design of the car, but also making it affordable. The technology was still really expensive. Think about it in current day terms. What if Americans had no cars and you are the person who is able to give it to them? You will have major clout. Enter Hitler and the people's car. But it wasn't officially called that. It was just, you know, that was the term. It was actually called the Kraft durch Freude (laughs) Wagen. The strength through joy car was the original name. The car was meant to be propaganda on wheels, a way to raise the living standard of average Germans. But also, Hitler just loved cars. And he, (laughs) it's true, he didn't have a driver's license, but he was a bit obsessed with automobiles and the automotive... uh, world in Germany at that time. Wait, so he is spearheading a car and he doesn't even have a driver's license? No, but he has a grand plan. And in 1933, he commissions a designer to create a car for the people. You may have heard of him. His name was Ferdinand Porsche. Do you know much about Porsche, Dan? Is this the actual guy behind Porsche, the brand? This is the guy. This is before Porsche existed as a brand of cars. He was an engineer then, a designer, and he was known for his temper, which was described as explosive, and also for his lack of, shall we say, desire to adhere to a budget. So these were the people responsible for the Volkswagen. This guy with a reputation as an impossible perfectionist and Hitler. What a dark start for this car. Yeah, Bernhard Rieger says the Beetle has a complex background. He teaches modern European history at the University of Leiden, and he wrote a book about the Beetle. 
The moral story that stands behind this is really a very complicated one because it needs to be said this is really an idea that is born by um, a dictatorship. And the reason that the car exists is really not just sort of like an accident of this dictatorship. The Volkswagen was only possible because of Hitler. Bernhard says at the time in Germany, only the funds of a regime could have financed the Volkswagen. Private industry wasn't up to the job. Hitler wanted to build a car that could be sold for 1,000 Reichsmarks. That's about $7,000 today. And there is no car on the market that I know of, at least, especially here in the U.S., there's no car on the market that sells for anywhere near that little. No. If you do the math, this is just not financially possible. But no one wants to tell Hitler his car isn't practical. You have to understand the Beetle isn't just a car. It's meant to be a symbol of the Nazi movement. For instance, this was a car that was supposed to um, help the members of the people's community, i.e. the so-called Aryans, to have, for instance, um, relaxing weekends so that on Monday they would be able to go back to work and um, support the Third Reich again in a much more um, efficient way. This is the Nazis' idea of getting to know rural Germany, So Germans were given these little books, almost like a green stamp book. I don't know if you ever used one at the grocery store. You would pay five marks a week. You would get these little Mm -hmm. stamps and put them in your book. And then eventually when the book was full, you were supposed to get this car. Hmm. Again, this is supposed to be the people's car. Every German is supposed to get a car, except, of course, only the right Germans. Hmm. And I mean, driving and car ownership were ideologically charged in 1938 All Jewish Germans had to give up their driver's licenses and um, they had to also hand over their cars. They were no longer allowed to drive on Germany's roads. And of course, I mean, like no Jewish Germans would ever have been allowed in the Third Reich to own this car. Adolf Hitler opens the Berlin Motor Show where he sees the latest products of the German manufacturers. He has said they must produce a people's car to cost 75 pounds and go. Hitler has abolished the office of president. He's forbidden non-Aryans to work as journalists. And concentration camps like Dachau and Buchenwald have been established. And now he's saying it's time to build this car. Please go do it. We're not going to have a focus group. That's product designer Bruce Hanna. He's written books about great designs, including the Volkswagen. And because of the wartime circumstances, Ferdinand Porsche essentially has a blank check to make whatever kind of car he wants. Then you allow designers and engineers and innovators and dreamers to just do something silly. And they do something silly. It's like, oh, my God, that's a pretty good silly thing you did. You know, we like it a lot. And it only happens when you just... Get rid of the rules. So what makes Porsche's design for the Volkswagen Beetle so different from other cars? Well, Bruce says at this point in the late 1930s, the design and layout of most cars hasn't changed that much since the very first models came out decades earlier. Like, you know, the trunk of a car? Do you know what that refers to? No. That actually refers to, if you picture an old-fashioned classic car, picking up like a kind of a steamer trunk and popping it on the back of the car. Huh. Um, glove compartment was for the hand, gloves when you're holding the reins. No one puts gloves in the glove compartment. We put maps and things, or you know, now 
manuals that no one reads. So in Porsche's Volkswagen Beetle, all those conventions are thrown out the window. He moves the trunk from the back to the front and the engine from the front to the back, and he comes up with a new kind of engine. It's cooled by air instead of water. So all of, the, all of that, he got rid of all of that, which was pretty amazing in, in like one fell swoop. Is there something to be said um, about designs that come specifically, not so much about, you know, Hitler and Nazis, but designs that come out of the need of wartime? Well, I think there's also the rules go away. What happens in war is, you know, most of the rules fall away because there's no time to think about doing something. You just have to do it. I mean, the old, the old bridge thing, you know, it come, you know, how long does it take to build a bridge during peacetime? Five years. How long does it take to build a bridge during war? One day. You know, so you, you throw the rules out. And once you throw the rules out, innovation starts. But because his design is so innovative, Porsche needs an updated factory with a lot of new machinery. Making cars cheaply needs to be done at scale. You need a big factory. So he works hard to stay on Hitler's good side. He even takes two prototypes of the car up to Hitler's Bavarian Mountain Retreat, where Hitler describes them admiringly as whizzing around like bumblebees. So Hitler's sold on the Beetle. Yeah, and on top of that, he convinces Hitler he needs to build that factory, the biggest car plant in Europe, and an entire city to house the factory workers. So in 1938, an architectural firm is hired to design this city— the strength through joy, car city. And then the next year, Dan, 1939, what happens? Hitler invades Poland. It's the beginning of World War II. The German foe begins its ruthless march of conquest. Poland's 34 million inhabitants, crushed, scattered, and enslaved. Production grinds to a halt, and it becomes clear there is no way a civilian car is going to be built. But it does get built eventually, right? Yes. But first, the people's car becomes a vehicle of war, the Kubelwagen. Back in a moment with that. Stay with us. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're back. So it's 1939. World War II has just started. What happens to the factory during the war? Well, the new factory that was supposed to build the Volkswagen, instead, production is turned to the Kubelwagen, a military version of the Beetle. 
There was a military beetle? There was a military beetle. It was wartime beige. It had a canvas top and a very square, different body than the current beetle, more like a bulky-looking toad or like a jeep. The plant also repairs aircraft and it builds anti-tank weapons. And because it's a new plant, there aren't older workers. And when war breaks out, they start running the plant using slaves and forced labor. There was even a small concentration camp built on the grounds of the plant. So this plant is not a nice place to work. Think everything you've heard about Nazis. And I mean, there was also really sadism that was going in. People were going hungry um, habitually. And um, when there was leftover food that was thrown away, um, one of the cooks, for instance, to prevent um, the um, inmates from eating this food was that he um, mixed broken glass into the remains of the food um, to basically injure these people. So there, was, so, so there were really horrible stories that were going on. The war ends in 1945. Millions and millions of people are dead. Hitler's vision for the Third Reich and the car never materialize. Portia is arrested and imprisoned by the French for war crimes. And in Germany and elsewhere, people are starving. Clear confirmation of the devastating results of Bomber Command's long-sustained offensive against industrial Germany, in conjunction with all the work of the Americans, is now provided by these RAF films. Wolfsburg, the strength through Joy Car City, has also been bombed. And the factory is in a really bad state. Andrea Hyatt again. There was a giant uh, bomb that was not exploded that was in the kind of tucked in between the uh, equipment needed to build the car. So they'd assembled this whole factory. They'd literally created a town for the car, made a factory, bought a lot of expensive equipment, tested it for 1.8 million miles. I mean, so much had gone into this car, and then it, the factory was bombed. So I think you know what happens in Germany after World War II, right? It gets carved up. The Allies move in. They each get a section of the country, the British, the French, the Russians, the Americans. A German factory is taken over for British military production. This was the huge plant erected at Hitler's order for the construction of the German people's car. The factory looks like what you would expect a place that's been bombed to look like. There's rubble everywhere. But inside, aside from that unexploded bomb, the machinery is in good shape. And there's something else you have to think about. The Allies want to strip Germany of its military power, but they also need to strengthen the country's economy. Being an occupying force is expensive, right? Right. You've got, what, like food and supplies and gas. And, of course, Britain's pretty broke after the war. Yeah, exactly. So the British don't want to get stuck importing food and supplies, which is expensive. And they also want to avoid poverty and discontented Germans, both of which are conditions which have led to big problems in the past. And the British have another problem. They're trying to oversee their part of Germany. They're in charge of 22 million German residents. And they don't have enough cars But Ivanhurst, a 29-year-old British army major, has an idea to get the factory running again. So he lobbies the Allied forces to get permission, and it's granted. In 1945, the year the war ends, the factory manages to produce some beetles. 58. Do you mean like 58,000? No. 58. Total? Total. Wow. But Hearst finds manufacturers, he finds supplies, workers, he builds up a national network of dealers. Things are moving at the plant. But eventually, the British military is going to need to leave. The plant will need a new owner. 
They're looking around for ideas. There's even a deal floated with Ford Motor. But Ford turns it down. We had occupied Germany. The, uh, so the Allied forces who the were Allied occupying, forces, yeah, who were occupying Germany, and they literally tried to just they tried to pawn give it, it off? Yeah. Like, yeah, who it. wants a factory? Who wants the factory? Bruce Hanna, the product designer again. Take the factory. Yeah, no one wanted it. Ford turns this down. Yeah, Ford turned it down. What, and why? America, went, America wanted the big Cadillac boat with the fins and the, you know, chrome. We won the war. We should have the big cars. It's big. It's new. It's the big news in the low-price field. The big news Studebaker. Look at it. So the Volkswagen factory gets handed over to joint owners. The Federal Republic, the name at the time for West Germany, and the state of Lower Saxony. And in 1950, the decision is made to export cars to international markets like the U.S. But I thought nobody in the U.S. wants small cars. Well, the Volkswagen does find at least one market in America. Women. Women at the time often said they felt more comfortable driving smaller cars. If you're looking for something to surprise her with, may we suggest something small and inexpensive? And the Beetle, which is small and inexpensive, does especially well as a second car and in the suburbs. But at the same time, it gets stuck in that second car niche. So how does it end up being such a big deal in the U.S.? Dan, you're not going to believe this. With the help of a very unusual advertising firm. Stay with us. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're back. The Beetle has made it to America, but it has not shaken off its dark past. So, Sally, my my dad made it his life's work to teach the Holocaust. That was his way of being Jewish. We weren't religious, but I just remember every time we had to get a car, you know, we would look and German cars were always off the table. Even, you know, decades and decades later, my dad felt so strongly that because of what had happened in World War II, that we should not buy a Volkswagen or any of these other brands that have ties to Nazi Germany. We wouldn't even consider them. I get it. I mean, I went to Hebrew school four days a week. I had a bat mitzvah. I grew up, you know, being around older people who had numbers tattooed on their arms. And even as an adult, I remember making plans to go visit a friend in Germany and my mom saying something to me like, I will never step foot in that country. Did your family have German cars growing up or even consider them? No, I think we had Mazdas. So they were Japanese cars. 
So I just wonder, in this story now, we're talking, what, 15, 20 years after World War II? And the VW Bug is on the market. Weren't customers turned off by this car's sordid past? Yeah, it was a problem. And that, plus the fact that Volkswagen wants to reach a bigger market, means it's time to rethink the company's advertising strategy. Alfredo Mark Antonio worked in Volkswagen's advertising department in Great Britain in the 70s, and he remembers the preceding decade well. So what was a typical ad for a car, just an imaginary ad for a car, like a Chevrolet or a Ford, like, at the time, just to compare? Like, what what would it say? Detroit's ads tended to be across two pages, full color, car often retouched to make it longer and wider or whatever, with uh, an admiring woman looking at a handsome man driving it, or perhaps the two of them together with the car parked in the driveway of a very glamorous-looking house in Connecticut. I guess that is the American dream in a car ad. Yeah, like I can imagine that in this, in like a spread in Life magazine, right? So Volkswagen hires an advertising agency, DDB, Doyle, Dane, and Bernbach. This is a big part of the story of how the Beetle went from its Nazi war roots to a symbol of peace, love, and happiness. Because an executive at DDB, the ad agency, decides to do something pretty crazy. He said, in fact, I've got a great gimmick. Let's tell the truth. Wait, so you're saying that advertisers were not 100% truthful about everything? I know, it's pretty shocking right now. <laughs> They were, they were selectively truthful. The bug is small, and it's relatively slow, and it's considered to be kind of ugly. So in 1959, when DDP starts putting out ads, they say things like, if you run out of gas, it's easy to push, or it makes your house look bigger, or ugly is only skin deep. Here's a TV version of that idea. I didn't know what I had. She was dependable, reliable. Not very glamorous, though. That's why I left. For beauty. So I came running back. Another person who found out that inner goodness is far more important than outward appearance. And because DDB is honest about the car's negatives, when the company talks about the car's pluses, American consumers listen and they believe. Wow. So he was he was basically establishing trust with the with America, with the American consumer. And so people, because he was so honest. Yeah. Well, nobody in the world had done it. I mean, British advertising, everybody's advertising all over the world was complimentary about its product all the time. That's all people ever did. And so when he all of a sudden started telling the truth, then uh, it, it changed the game. But Dan... There was something else unusual about this advertising agency. Aside from their unusual strategy of telling the truth? Yeah. And to understand that, to figure out what that was, you do not have to look very hard just at some of the other companies the firm was working for at the time, like LL Airlines. Meaning like the National Airline of Israel? Yes. And then there was Levy's Matza. Uh-huh. Okay. I'm starting to sense a trend. Well, you have to appreciate, and this is, and this is a very odd thing in a way, it was quite a Jewish agency, DDB. What? Yeah, the company that helped make Volkswagen this car commissioned by Hitler and 
that was born out of the Nazi party, the company that helped to make this big in America, it was a Jewish advertising company. It was a company run by Jews. And they were okay with this? No. (laughs) So Bill Bernbach, who ran the firm, was Jewish. And a lot of his clients were Jews. And even though he takes on the job, there is, understandably, some pushback. And when he decided to pitch for the Volkswagen account, there was a fair bit of unrest in uh, the agency. Should we be doing this? Because, you know, they were Jewish. Um, But uh, Bernbach, you know, uh, convinced them that, you know, the war was over and, you know, they shouldn't uh, be embittered. And they so they pitched for the business and won it. But an employee by the name of George Lois, who is actually part of the team responsible for the most groundbreaking and famous Volkswagen ads, he is not so comfortable. And he argued with Bernbach and said, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. Uh, But Bernbach said, no, we're going to do it. And eventually, uh, George Lois came back to him after he'd been thinking about the campaign for a while and said very famously, you know what the problem is, uh, Bill? He said, no. He said, we've got to sell a Nazi car in a Jewish town. (laughs) And that that sentence that George Lois said has gone down as a sort of historic uh, advertising uh, line. But DDB didn't just hire Jews. The company was full of minorities, or as they called them at the time, ethnics. The other thing is, Donald Dane was almost the only agency in New York that hired um, ethnics. The whole of the American industry of advertising, not just in New York, but across America, was WASP, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant uh, management, creative people, everything. They were all, um, uh, you know, from Harvard, Yale, wherever it might be. There were no uh, ethnics there. Except at DDB. Except at DDB. And also, Birnbach, very unusually, uh, his first copy chief was a woman. Well, women in in, uh, advertising in the States were, you know, there to have their uh, bottoms pinched, not their brains picked. You know, so uh, that, again, was a big change. The ads they come up with are legend. They're often considered to be the best of the 20th century. And Bruce Hanna, the product designer, has this memory of a TV ad he loves. The the screen is completely black. You can't see the car, but you hear it. You hear this wonderful sound of the Volkswagen coming in. And it turns, and it goes away. And the tagline is, we didn't change anything. (laughs) What a magnificent thing to say about a design. We didn't change anything. It's the same car. If you want one, they're at your dealer today. Whereas everybody else at the time is going, well, the fins are bigger. The, the, we have better colors. We have, uh, you know, you, you can, you have bucket seats. You have, you know, who cares? Who cares about that? When what you're selling is, in the end, love. And there's one Volkswagen ad in the 1960s that really strikes a chord with the new generation. Have you seen it, Dan? The slogan is, think small. This is that one where there's just a tiny little car in all this white space. It just looks so 
like such a contemporary ad. I can't believe it's from decades ago. Yeah, and it hits really deep with a certain segment of the American public. Think small, like, ah, if you're a counterculture person, if you're a young person going to university, seeing that your parents have the big car and the washing machine and still aren't happy, but still seeing that that's the thing you're supposed to be wanting. Yeah, maybe thinking small is better than thinking big. Yeah. So Andrea says we have this perfect storm. There's this strange car that doesn't fit the mold of what a car should look like. We have this small outsider ad agency. And then we have the counterculture happening. And Think Small ends up getting pretty big. People love the Beetle. And the wonderful thing about the Volkswagen was, it didn't matter. It, it, it embraced you anyway. It said, oh, no, I don't really mind. It could, <laughs> could be anything you want. You know, it sort of fit everybody. You know, if you, if you had a tuxedo on, you could drive it. And you wow, you look really good in there. You had a bikini on, you looked great in it. For some reason, it was a, this neutral background that you could just be part of. And it accepted you. It was this neutral palette. It was like, okay, what do you want me to be today? I'll be that. You can put a flower sticker on the side, or you could strap a surfboard to the roof. Some people never took drugs or went to Woodstock or whatever, you know. They just tried to live a different kind of life or maybe do take a job of something they cared about instead of something just to buy the next big car. And I think the car just hit that, hit that wave at just the right time. It became their car. These are the people who bought that car. There's even a countercultural style how-to manual for the Beetle. Which taught you how to basically listen to your car and um, sort of make sure that its karma stayed intact and positive. It was a bestseller. I oh see you God. laughing. <laughs> this was a car you could customize. You got drag racers. You had dune buggies down at the beach. The Beetle even got a Disney movie of its own, The Love Bug, about a race car driver who encounters a car with a mind of its own. Did you see this thing take off? One of your showboat tricks, Mr. Douglas. I tell you, I had nothing to do with it. Hey, we were turned. The Beetle is exported around the world, and everywhere it goes, it's loved, but for different reasons. Like in Germany, the Beetle is not for rebels. Instead, it's appreciated as a symbol of reliability and resilience. I mean, when I was talking to um, my German friends and especially, um, say, older family relatives about this association with unconventionality, they said, yes, of course, in West Germany, students also drove this car, but it never had this reputation for unconventionality or that you could do everything with it. Um, it was first and foremost um, sort of like this rather reliable rather sturdy object. But if you then take the car to Mexico, it basically becomes a Mexican um, because it is as sturdy as life in that country with bad roads and a lot of unreliable government. Wherever it went, it became a part of people's lives. My husband got it brand new in college. And when we got married, it became our family car. We brought both our children home from the hospital in it. Um, I remember my brother and I used to argue over who would sit in the well that was behind the back seat. Um, and when we drove home up the long hill uh, towards our house, my father would purposely swerve the car back and forth and we would bounce around inside the car like popcorn and hang on to the vinyl strap that was hanging down. 
My mom is on her fourth Beetle, and we had matching cars for years. We loved to take pictures hanging out of the sunroof and parking next to each other. It was always so much fun. I love driving by people, kids mostly, and seeing them punching the person beside them, saying punch bug. Fellow Beetle drivers would wave when you passed on the road. It was a sisterhood, a brotherhood. And every bug had a name, too. My dad's blue beetle was named Shadowfax. They first owned a yellow one that we called the Lemon. And my mom's blue beetle was named Samuel. And then an orange one that we rather uncreatively called the Orange. My beetle was yellow. She was named Libby, spelled L-Y-B for Little Yellow Bug. Bernhard Rieger also had a beetle. We had a beetle, so I have my own little beetle memories from when I was really, really little, little, as does my wife, who is American. So she also grew up partly in a beetle in Buffalo, New York. And her beetle was called, or her family beetle was called Jimmy the Cricket. (laughs) Did your car have a name too in your family? Yeah, the Steinbeiser. It was gray, and that means the stonebiter. The stone biter? Why the stone? The stone biter. Well, the stone biter because it just never gave up. It was like it would basically grind away like somebody would um, if they are chewing stones. Volkswagen sold the original Beetle in the U.S. for decades. By its last year, 1980, it sold 5 million bugs. I guess one of the questions I'm struggling with is like, what is the car to people? Is it I mean, this might, I was like, is it a family member? Is it a religion? Is it a culture? No, I'm, and it's, it's definitely all of that stuff. But I think, you know, if you, if you have like a band that you really like, <laughs> that you, that, that the songs just happen to come at just the right time in life and playing that music, you were experiencing certain things that you remember when you hear that music now, the car's like that. A little bit for a lot of people. It's an experience, you know. Andrea Hyatt stumbled onto VW's history and the history of the Beatle just by accident, by driving around Germany. I grew up with this story. I mean, I remember as a little kid seeing old ads for the VW Beetle and, you know, it was in pop culture. There was Herbie and the Love Bug and the Beetle was still everywhere. And I remember my dad pulling me aside and telling me the real story of where this car came from. And so from a really young age, I knew that it was connected to Hitler and the Holocaust. And I have a really hard time shaking that. And I guess that really is the question here. What's more important, where the beetle came from or what it became? I've thought about that, about other things like that. And, I, you know, I've thought about, like, what, what, what are the great, what's the great art? Do we know the pope that commissioned the Sistine Chapel? Do we even care? Do we care what art the Medici's commissioned? I mean, they were bad people. Um, but for some reason, I think art and design transcend lots of times the the impetus for it and all of a sudden it's transformed it's like oh my god it's it's not it's not a symbol of the reich it's a symbol of peace a symbol of peace i can live with that thank you for bringing us this story sally thank you mm-hmm. 
If you have comments or story ideas, get in touch. You can email us at householdname at insider.com or go to our Facebook group. Just search for Household Name Podcast. We're working on a new segment of our show featuring brands from around the world, and we're starting with Freddo's. Do you know what Freddo's are? Do you have a feeling about how much they cost or how they taste? Maybe fond Freddo's memories from your childhood to share? Send us an email at householdname at insider.com or let me know on Twitter. I'm at Dan Bobkoff. Please also leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find the show. This episode was reported by Sally Herships and produced by Sarah Wyman with Amy Padula and me. Our editor is Gianna Palmer. Sound design and original music by John Delore and Casey Holford. Special thanks to Folkert Kuhorn, Samuel Robinson, Christian Betts, and to our listeners who sent in their VW bug stories. My name is Alice Adler, and I live in Jamestown, Rhode Island. My name is Sarah, and I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hi, I'm Natalie Craig from Rome, Georgia. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I live in Palatia, New York. My name's Barbara Hagee. I live in Los Angeles now, but I lived outside of Philadelphia when we had our 1968 Beatle. The executive producers are Chris Bannon, Jenny Radelet, and me. Household Name is a production of Insider Audio. Stitcher.